Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our guest, author Matt Roland Hill. She's looking into my eyes. She's holding my hand. She's looking into my eyes. She's holding my hand. She says, you can't repeat the past. I say, you can't? What do you mean you can't? Of course you can. (laughs) (laughs) Why that particular? I mean, that's not, you know, the, the most famous Bob Dylan lyric. Why did you choose that, Matt? Well, I think everyone knows that we're in this phase of Dylan's renaissance. For me, the renaissance of Dylan starts in 2001 with Love and Theft. Mm. A lot of people say that it's 1997, time out of mind. I love the album. I think it's got some immortal songs on it, not dark yet. You know, that's one for the ages. But Mm. for me, that's his throat clearing before he reaches full voice with Love and Theft. Mm. On Love and Theft, he's so playful. You feel like the font of creativity has been turned back on again. What really interests me about Mm. Summer Days is that it's a song about can you regain past glories? And in this lyric, he's in a conversation with a a woman, we, we presume a lover, And she's saying, you know, you can't repeat the past. And he says, of course you can. It's an interesting lyric for a number of reasons, I think. One is that it's almost a perfect quote from The Great Gatsby. So we know that Love and Theft is full of, it's like a collage of quotations from the blues and from Americana, rock and roll. But there's also a lot of literature in there as well. And in The Great Gatsby, Nick Carraway, the narrator, says to the protagonist, Gatsby. You can't repeat the past. And Gatsby says, can't repeat the past? Why, of course you can. So this lyric is a quotation. In fact, it's a repeating of the past. And this is, you know, Dylan's so clever. He's so clever. An allusion to past writing is a repetition of the past. But can you repeat the past? Well, he's misquoted it. So he hasn't repeated the past perfectly. And Gatsby is a lunatic. And Dylan is casting himself in the role of Gatsby. The tragedy of Gatsby is that he thinks that he can repeat the past, but he can't. And this song, Summer Days, to me, is an argument about whether or not you can repeat the past. You know, my pockets are loaded and I'm spending every dime. How can you say you love someone else? You know, it's me all the time. This is Dylan in kind of like full boastful, vaunting mode. He almost sounds like a kind of rapper, you know, where they're boasting about the money they've got. But then there's another lyric where he says... I've got my hammer ringing pretty, baby, but the nails ain't going down, you know, and I think we can probably all relate to that at times. There's a complicated story going on in this song or a complicated argument about whether or not you can repeat the past. But I think in the end when he says, summer days, summer nights are gone, I know that a place where there's still something going on, the place where there's still something going on is the music, you know, it's still going on and he is repeating the past maybe not perfectly maybe it's not exactly what it once was but like this is i mean in my opinion it's just one of dylan's top uh, it's, it's in my top three probably i'm really glad you said that and i'm also glad you related it to not dark yet if accidentally because i now realize they're both autumnal songs about what lies ahead mm. and the whole point about his renaissance was certainly with not dark yet a lot of music writers decided in 1997 that this was Dylan summing up his career. This would be the last great album. This was the obituary. And he said in in interviews just after that, actually, it was more of a beginning. 
And we thought, yeah, come on. Yeah. Who are you kidding? Oh, God, here we are 25 years later. It's definitely what he was doing. And he says in both of those songs, in the first one, he says, it's not dark yet, which for years I always thought it was about the fact that it was getting there. I'm now convinced it's about the fact that it's not dark yet. That's the point. And then with Summer Days, he's saying the summer's gone, but... <laughs> There's still something going on. <laughs> There's still on. something going on. You've got 25 more years plus out of me. You know, I yeah, can, I can yeah. do this. And that's, it's amazing to me that he had the foresight to say that. And now we're only sort of catching up with the truth of that. Well, he's been knocking on heaven's door since the late 60s, you know, yeah. hasn't he? As you say, here we are, like quarter of a century later mm. since since Time Out of Mind. Who would have thought it? You know, and to and to listen to this album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, which I which I love. I don't love it as much as Love and Theft, but I can't believe the endlessness of the creativity that goes into these lyrics. You know, and when he sings a song like, you know, I've made up my mind to give myself to you at the age of eighty one, I kind of think wow, the energy left in this guy, you know. I mean, he, yeah. he took his time to make up his mind, but it's astonishing just the profusion of words and sound coming from this guy, even at this late stage. I don't know, I don't know if there's another example of a writer who is still at the top of their game, or very close to the top of their game, in his 80s. You know, that's an astonishing thing to me. I know, I was trying to explain this to someone the other day, you know, McCartney, Jagger, Dylan, they, all these people who were born in the early 40s. And, you know, you can find footage of Mick Jagger in the, in the 70s and 80s saying, I'm not going to be doing this when I'm in my 40s. That would be ridiculous. Well, you know, they're all twice that now. But there's no roadmap on how to be a rock star in your 80s. None whatsoever. Absolutely and none. Even I was looking at the, sort of the great blues masters. I think Dylan is significantly older than Muddy Waters ever was, for example. Mm. You know, we're, we're really into brand new territory here for people like him. And, and also talking not just about the, the words, but I was playing um, Summer Days today, and I was aware of how raucous it was because my wife was upstairs and she was trying to work or whatever. Uh, but it's a very loud song, and I like to play it loud. And it just rocks like crazy. And it's just, that's just as good as the words as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's a real crazy sort of... Uh, it's kind of like hillbilly, rock, like rockabilly, like rockabilly. It's like a hint of like Texas Roadhouse blues. There's a hint yeah. of like early rock and roll, Chuck Berry about and, it, and it as well. But it doesn't, you know, like the drums are just going all the time. It just, it's, it's not subtle. It's, it's a big Joe fun. Turner in there, isn't there? About yeah, yeah. 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 And anyway, yeah. so it's still, it's still strong enough that I'm thinking that I maybe should turn it down. But, <laughs> uh, but I won't turn it down because it's fun. It's just fun. I think it's some of the best blues music that's ever been made mm. on that album. You know, and... He's really got his mojo back. I mean, Time Out of Mind has got some great songs on it, but I'm not sure there's a song that rocks as hard as anything on Love and Theft. No. No. And I just think on Love and Theft, he sounds like he's having fun. Yeah. But there's something unfettered about it as well, because after Time Out of Mind, every album since then has been produced by Dylan under this pseudonym, Jack, Jack Frost. Frost. And there's a kind of <laughs> eruption of this is what I really want to do, kind of ness about Summer Days and Love and Theft, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think... I think Eruption and unfettered is the um, are the words that spring to mind. Abs- absolutely, I don't think he's topped Love and Theft. I don't think I've loved an album as much as Love and Theft, and that I've not, not thought of that way. Except maybe I've really been getting into a Rough and White Rowdy Ways because yes. we went to see him in concert yeah. recently, and that was my kind of kind of homework because I hadn't really loved it, but listening to it a lot in much more of a concentrated way than I had when it came out, I grew to love it. But it's it's like its own genre. And so for that reason, I, I place it quite highly because it's like it's sort of a, one, a one-off. 
Well, that's the thing about Dylan, isn't it? I mean, he just seems to be making up the rules for himself all the time. And, you know, I contain multitudes is, is exactly right, isn't it? Oh, I, I agree with you. I mean, this you is why we find him so fascinating, because yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't read the Dylan biographies. Right. I feel like Dylan, he's a secretive guy. And he wants to be known through his music. I don't rule out ever reading a Dylan biography. And I am interested in his psychology, but I'm kind of interested in reading his psychology through the songs. I'm the same. I'm the same. But I do love reading Dylan interviews. You know, that I always read articles about Dylan where they say he rarely gives interviews. I've got a gigantic thousand-page book in my loo um, with the Dylan interviews. And I do love reading those because that, to me, gives me almost an equal clue how his mind works. And you think... I've read all the interviews. I still don't understand how his mind works. I am not sure that he understands how his mind works. No. Sometimes when I read the interview, I mean, I, I'm interested in Dylan interviews too. And um, you get somewhere he speaks quite straight and quite sincerely. Mm. And then other times you listen to him and it's kind of a word salad. <laughs> and I mean, I, I mean, I think Dylan is a genius. I would place Dylan up there with pretty much any poet in the history of English literature, right? Um, I'm not sure that he's the most kind of intellectual character. And I don't mean at all to say that I'm, I don't want to speak down to Dylan. I mean, I wouldn't dare. I think he's a genius. But yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not sure if the interviews give that much of a clue into his personality. I wonder if Dylan, if all of these different guises that we see throughout Dylan's career mm. are all masks that he wears... Or is it that this is a man with an extremely unstable sense of self who doesn't know who he is from one minute to the next? I don't know. I don't know either. And I, I don't know I, either. I said this to someone the other day because because of this podcast, people sometimes say to me, but what's Dylan's life like? What's his relationship with his parents like? What was his school life like? And, I mean, maybe as a way of masking the fact that I don't know, I, I just say I don't care. I just don't. I'm not interested remotely in his children, his marital status, his education. I'm just interested in his work because that's more than enough. And, you know, in his work, you'll see more deeply into his mind yeah. than anything that you could learn yeah. from the biographical information. I mean, in that in that respect, he's a lot like Shakespeare. You know, we don't know very much about Shakespeare. Would it improve our appreciation of Macbeth or Hamlet if we knew, you know, what Shakespeare was up to any given Sunday or what his religious beliefs were or like who he loved or yeah. whether he was bisexual or, you know, Ooh. like... I'm not sure if it would. I kind of think the work really speaks for itself. Speaking of biography, your memoir, Original Sins, which we've both read, and as far as I'm concerned, is one of the best books I read this year. I, I just thought it was mm. just fabulous. And oh, thank you. Uh, Dylan's mentioned a couple of times, just sort of in passing, but whew, I, don't, I hardly know where to start. But uh, I was I was just so uh, moved by it and fascinated by it. But just sort of. Well, I'll start with the, you were raised in an evangelical Christian household. So that's something unusual. We've never certainly on the podcast, you know, talked to somebody who had that sort of background. And of course, that ties into to Bob. Mm -hmm. And I also have to sort of say one of the reasons that I, I dropped out, I didn't listen when I heard um, Slow Train coming once. Mm. And then I didn't listen to Dylan again for like many years until I, really? I, I was told it was okay to come out of the bushes. And one of the reasons is because my background was not dissimilar to, to Dylan's. It was middle-class Jewish, Midwestern uh, household. But secular. Yes. Yeah, sec well, I did. I got bar mitzvah like Bob Dylan, you know, and then as soon as I could, I, I left. But it was nothing like the 
what I know about uh, your background in the book. And it's always struck me as bizarre that like I was taught virtually nothing about Christianity in, in my... I had to figure it out for myself. And then I kind of figured it out, pieced things together, did, did some reading, you know, and, and I thought, oh, well, this is also not for me. This Jewish thing isn't for me. The Christian thing isn't for me. The, you know, the various other things are, are not for me. And yet Bob leapt on it. And I think... Leapt on it. <laughs> and I think one of the things I can only guess is, is that, that he does love myth. Mm. And maybe it was the myth... Then he seemed to be, then he was a fundamentalist. So anyway, yeah. tell us a bit about your background for people who haven't read the book. Well, my book's called Original Sins. Mm. I mean, sin is a favorite word of Dylan's, of course. It pops up <laughs> everywhere in his work. It's basically the story of my life. I grew up the son of a preacher man. <laughs> my dad was an evangelical preacher in South Wales. And actually, the kind of Christianity that I grew up with was exactly the kind of Christianity that Bob Dylan converted into in uh, 1979. Mm. Calvinist, literalistic, fire and brimstone, black and white, heaven and hell, full of shame and fantasies of hell and heaven and God and the devil and angels and demons. Yeah, if I listen to that music, you know, it feels it's very close to home. So I grew up in that environment. And then when I was a teenager, I had a crisis of faith. It just began to feel like none of it was true. And I wrestled with it for a couple of years. And by the time I was 18, I realized that I didn't believe it, which was wonderfully liberating at first but it kind of left a vacuum in my life. And then, you know, sadly, I turned to drugs. I was very lost as a young man, and I became a heroin addict. I, I got into crack. I was an intravenous heroin and crack user. I contracted hepatitis C. I spent time in a psychiatric unit, and, you know, I was very lucky to, to be alive. In the end, got help, and, you know, the book is, then becomes about trying to find a way forward without uh, religion or drugs. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I do mention Dylan a couple of times in the book. If I was telling the gospel of St. Matthew instead of Original Sins by Matt Roland Hill, mm. Dylan probably would have been in there a little bit more because he's been such an enormous presence in my life. But I just kind of felt like enough people have written about Dylan and people didn't need to hear any more about it. Slow Train Coming was actually the first Dylan album that I ever heard because my dad <laughs> had the Christian albums on LP <laughs> And I was getting into Dylan, or I was, get, I was listening to music just before the digital age, just before everything was online. Uh, so it was LPs and CDs. So Slow Train Coming was the first one that I ever heard. So was it your dad's copy of it? It was my dad's copy from 1979. Yeah. I kind of liked it, but luckily he also had the greatest hits from the 60s. Mm -hmm which had a, a bunch of tracks on it from the early albums and from Highway 61 and Blonde mm. on Blonde. Mm. And that just blew my mind. And that was probably part of... I mean, it was being exposed to secular culture like that mm. that probably helped me break free from the indoctrination that I'd grown up with. 
I mean, I should say as well, you know, the, uh, it, it sounds like a very dark and, and sad story that I've just told, but the book's kind of supposed to be funny and it's oh, uh, it's really funny I and entertaining as well. A lot, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It constantly surprises you at what you find engaging or entertaining or gripping. It's, it's yeah, it's not like a misery memoir. Oh no, I would hate to. Yeah, I would hate yeah. to have written a misery memoir. No, no. It, but I basically read this because uh, you were coming on the podcast, and uh, I was. What can I say? It's I, I don't want to go overboard, but I, I, I don't recommend much in the way of books. But I actually thought there were times when I was reading it, I thought I almost forgot it was a memoir because it's so it's kind of like a novel. And I mean that in a good way. Yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't write that book as psychotherapy for myself. You know, it wasn't about catharsis for me. I'd already done a lot of therapy. Thank God I'd had a lot of help. And I was kind of at the stage where I just wanted to tell a story. And I'd always wanted to be a novelist. You know, I studied literature at university. And mm. and actually Dylan was kind of one of my ways into that, into loving poetry and loving words. And I, even when I was a drug addict, I always had a novel on my knee. So when you're a drug addict, you've got a lot of spare time. Uh, you, you spend a lot of time waiting for dealers. So I'd always be sitting there with like a copy of like Jane Austen or like George Eliot or whatever on my knee waiting for dealers and um, it turned out to be a good disguise because the police won't pay any attention to somebody who's waiting to <laughs> buy class A drugs and reading Jane reading. Austen at the same time so a little tip for a little tip drug for anyone there, yeah. no I don't I can't I can't uh, endorse that <laughs> that kind of behaviour and ironically enough in, in the book when you and in your life when you reject Christianity the phrase you use which is very ironic, and I know exactly what you mean, is born again. Yeah. You feel born again because you are free of this ethos that has absolutely held you in form of in a sort of imprisoned form mm. for your life thus far. And yet most people choose born again to mean the other side of the religious coin. Yeah, you know, I mean, that was the great irony. And I do think that there's, and this relates to Bob too, I do think that there's a similarity between the psychology of an addict and the psychology of a devout religious believer. Mm. They both don't want to live in this world. They want to live in another one. They're both longing for something higher, some kind of ecstasy or transcendence, mm. some sense of being in heaven. And I mean, the, the word addict originally is, is related etymologically to the, to the word for devotion, you know, so there's a, there's a linguistic link there too. And again, I don't know all the details of Dylan's history with drugs, but he definitely once or twice mm. seemed to have um, gone a bit too far down that road. And he was also somebody who had a deep need to be born again and again and again. You know, I mean, we see that. The Christian albums, it's probably hard for us now to be able to imagine just what a shock it was to the world when Bob Dylan came out as a flaming fundamentalist Christian. That was probably the biggest change in his whole career. You know, even bigger than Dylan Goes Electric or Dylan Embraces Country Music with Nashville Skyline or Dylan Stops Making Bad Music in the late <laughs> 1990s. You know, becoming a fundamentalist Christian. And I, I'm fascinated by that psychology because I'm also somebody who has been various different people in his life. Not as many different people as Bob, 
but you know, once upon a time, I was a raging believer. You know, I thought that everyone who wasn't a Christian was going to hell when I was a kid. And then I I stopped believing that. And then I became a heroin addict, which was my parents' worst nightmare. And then, you know, na- nowadays I'm fairly sort of puritanical or at least um, I'm, you know, quite clean cut in the way that I... Clean cut kid. Yeah, exactly. And have I got this right? Does Calvinism incorporate predestination? Exactly, yeah. So, so, so there is no way for you to change your, your fate in, in, within that belief. You are saved or damned, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, the Calvinist idea is that before the creation of the world, God decided, before you were even born or conceived, God decided if you were going to go to heaven or hell. And Dylan believed that, right? Dylan references that on some of the songs from Saved. He says, thank you for choosing me, which means... I didn't choose you. He uses all the language. Well, the album's called Saved. I mean, he's clearly talking about that. Isn't yeah, he? yeah. So it's ex- it's precisely the style of Christianity that my parents believed in. I mean, I'm really interested in what was going on for Dylan at that time. I don't know how much biographical information or reliable information there is out there about how that happened. So we know that in the 70s, he had this sort of heartbreaking divorce, which was, you know, a terrible crisis for him. Mm. And, you know, and that, and that leads to a, a great efflorescence of beautiful music. And then in 78, you've got Street Legal. And in Street Legal, you can already start to see the signs of somebody who's spiritually searching or, or, or spiritually lost, right? You know, the very first lyrics on Street Legal are 16 years, 16 banners united over the field, where the good shepherd grieves, right? It's a bit cryptic, but Dylan had been recording albums for 16 years at that point, right? He seems to be saying something a bit like, you know, the good shepherd, Jesus, grieves over everything I've done so far. We can already see a sign mm. of, and there's lots, there's, there's lots of biblical imagery on that album in Senor, you know, which is a, it's a song about being lost and wanting someone to guide you. And in it, he sings at one point, let's overturn these tables, which is an image from the New Testament yeah, when mm-hmm. Jesus goes into yep. the temple and turns over yep. the tables of the moneylenders. Let's overturn these tables, disconnect these cables. This place don't make sense to me no more. Can you tell me what we're waiting for, Senor? Right? And then, uh, where are you tonight? Journey through dark heat. There's all this apocalyptic imagery there, you know? So this is a man who's looking to be saved. He's lost and he's already dabbling. I don't know what his involvement was with churches at that time, but he was ripe to be captured by someone who could come along and say, what, things don't make sense to you no more, Bob? Well, I'll make sense of the world for you. Here's a black and white worldview for you. And then he falls in with this very strict church and then he he releases these three albums. And the message of those Christian albums for me is that hardline religion is generally not that good for art. I think you could probably make one good album out of the... I don't know if you guys agree. Mm. Uh, I know some people think that Christian albums are a bit underrated. I, I think you could make one good album out of the three Christian albums. There's a bit of dross in there. Oh, there's a lot of dross. I do agree with you. I mean, I, I think there is some good stuff there. There's, I think, one good album. And then you move on to uh, to Infidels, which I was listening to uh, a lot uh, recently, and and you can feel them sort of coming out of it. But there's also, I, I just listened to it today, and I, I thought, 
it's kind of a, almost a Christian album. I mean, there's there's so much Christian imagery in it. And I think I, I read that it was originally going to be called something like Living in a Wicked World or something like Amazing. that. Amazing. Then some, no, that's right. It was called something like, it began with an S, Surviving, Surviving in a Wicked World. Surviving in a Ruthless World. In a Ruthless World, that's right. And then somebody pointed out to him that his last, his Born Again albums all started with S. As did Street Legal. Uh, yeah, and so he thought, oh, Four, to hell with right. this, I'll come yeah. up with something else. And then That's um, not the worst thing about that title at all. <laughs> <laughs> but then he, some, so he called it Infidels, and then uh, I was reading an interview, and somebody said, why'd you call it Infidels? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Infidels is a very powerful but, word. I mean, that's not something you just pick out of the air and think, oh, I don't know. No, it's an angry word, isn't it? And it's a judgmental word. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's really interesting to me. I mean, you know, one of the things I write about in my book is this period that I went through where I was kind of half a Christian and half not. And this cognitive dissonance that I lived with where I would sort of go out on Saturday night, get drunk and have sex with my girlfriend and take drugs. And then I'd go to church and repent on Sunday morning. And I kind of feel like on Infidels, <laughs> this is Dylan in full cognitive dissonance mode he's half a christian but he's half not it's fascinating to me that he releases this trilogy of extremely fundamentalist albums and then he comes out with this album that has got a song on it like sweetheart like you which i don't know what the politically correct word for this is but it's set in what would then have been called a whorehouse right i mean he's there's a lot of casual sex on that album the Dylan of 79 would not have had any truck with that at all. And it's interesting that, you know, he it's not like he put out a press release and explained himself. He just kind of comes out with this album. And just the, I mean, the brass neck to contradict yourself so flagrantly. And the album opens with this, the Christ imagery of standing on the water, casting your bread, right? So it's all in there. And then every grain of sand at the end, which is a sort of Blakeian version of Christianity. It's all it's all mixed up in that one album, isn't it? Yeah, every grain of sand is the last song on Shot of Love, isn't it? I'm sorry, why are we talking about, what am I talking about? Infidels. Yeah, Christ, I should be fired from my own fucking podcast. <laughs> um, I'm going to say that again. Oh, come on, we got to keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. But, but, but I mean, but Joker Man, I mean, is a, is a really interesting song to me. I mean... For a start, it's just a lot better than any songs that he's written for some years. Mm, mm. The imagery and the, the words in that song are just astonishing to me. I mean, I think if you wanted to make a case for Dylan as a great poet, I mean, we don't need to make that case anymore. He's got the Nobel Prize, right? But, you know, if that case needed to be made, I think Joker Man would be exhibit A. I think some of the lyrics there are astonishing. But who is this figure, Joker Man? You know, he seems to be Jesus, mm. in a way. He's a friend to the martyr. He's a friend of the woman of shame. At other times, he seems to be like a satanic sort of figure, right? Like um, when Dylan sings about a woman just gave birth to a prince today and dressed him in scarlet, put his priest in the pocket, put the blades of the heat, took the motherless children off the street and placed them at the feet of a harlot. One of those wonderful Dylan lines, uh, rhymes that takes a long time to mm, come around. Mm. You know, astonishing, this Baroque imagery, which we've seen before on Street Legal a little bit. You know, losing his faith or beginning to lose his faith was creatively really productive for mm. Dylan. I think he felt yeah. a bit born again in that moment because, you know, saved and shot of love, a lot of shot of love, I mean, saved in particular... These songs are a string of cliches 
a lot of them. You could hear a lot of these lyrics in any gospel. Well, you quote um, Shake the Dust Off Your Feet in your, in your book as a New Testament. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, shit, that's from Pressing On. I didn't even realise that was pre- a biblical pre- quote as well. Right, yeah, Shake you the know. Dust Off Your Feet, which is a, a, a phrase from Jesus, which Dylan, the one similarity between Dylan and I as artists, we both use that line. <laughs> um, but, you know, Pressing On I kind of like, actually. Yeah. But it's a conventional gospel song. Mm. You know, it's not, it's not great But literature. here's the thing, we were talking about this earlier. What is the difference between gospel, which I have no problem with, Johnny Cash releasing some hymns, you know, Mavis Staples, Mavis Staples, whatever, and Christian rock? There's something humorless and Mm. something po-faced and something patronising in the latter, which doesn't exist in the former. And I'm not quite sure what it is. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a world of difference between Aretha Franklin and, you know, your average Christian rock band today. I I mean... in Dylan's case, it's partly that he can't sing like Aretha. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but pressing, as you said, pressing on, pressing is on is a beautiful gospel song. song. Yeah, give it to Alicia Keys in, at the end of that Muscle Shoals documentary. Yeah. It's a gospel song. Yeah. I went to yeah. Beth Nielsen Chapman the other night. Yeah, and she was talking about Father Along being one of her favourite hymns. And I thought, yeah, I can get behind that. Yeah, but her support act a couple of hours earlier had said, um, "I'm going to do a song now that means an awful lot to me. It's called." The Lord is coming. And I thought, now this isn't the same thing. This is yeah. not the same thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, in general, hardcore religion isn't great for poetry. You know, there haven't been too many poets. That, I mean, there have been religious poets. I mean, John Donne and Leonard Cohen, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, two quite similar writers mm-hmm. in a way, in the way that they merge the imagery of religious devotion and sexuality and love. Those are powerful religious writers, but they weren't doctrinaire. You know, they weren't fundamentalists. Exactly. I mean, Leonard Cohen apparently, you know, took to his his bed for a week when he heard that that Dylan was actually a fundamentalist Christian. I mean, he could, oh, he yeah. could not deal with that. Yeah. Oh, really? No, yeah, apparently he was really profoundly upset. Um, just going back to uh, incorporating Dylan in your writing, because I just I picked up your book today again and just was leafing through it, and I came to this thing, which I wondered if it was, it must be on purpose, but I just want to see. It was when you were in the book, you're berating the priest at the famous public school that you uh, don't mention um, in the book. Was it Harrow? Harrow, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because uh, he's not hardcore enough for you and you're there with your brother and that your brother doesn't really seem to be you know backing you up and after you have the argument with the priest you berate your brother for not backing you up and you say something about uh well the brother says you know you think you're jesus but you're not him Mm -hmm. and did that relate to you know they refused jesus too you know he said you're not him from bob dylan's 115th dream or did that just happen to be be a thing that happened to you no i like that i like that a lot i I didn't have that in mind oh that's interesting but you know i mean that the in that scene i mean i just want to say i got a scholarship to harrow we didn't pay any money to (laughs) go there i feel like that's important (laughs) for everybody to know but um I write there about the kind of anger of the sort of fundamentalist believer against the people who sort of, who are just like the mild Christians. Yeah, because he was he was defending homosexuality in one of his sermons, and you said, you know, what's up with that? Yeah, you know, I, mean, I wanted, to, sh- I wanted to show myself as yeah. my, as the kind of like at my most ignorant, <laughs> which I was once upon a time, because fundamentalist Christianity doesn't really do you any favors in in that respect. But you know, it's interesting that Dylan as well. When he became a fundamentalist Christian, 
all of that anger and judgmentalism and that sort of like getting up on a stage and, you know, he gets up on a stage and he condemns the audience for demanding the old um, secular music, mm. right? And he says, you, you'll enjoy rock and roll in the fiery pit or whatever, right? Anger and hardcore religion go very well together. Mm. <laughs> and Dylan had a lot of anger. You can almost hear the tones of like positively fourth street or or like a rolling stone in those kind of like angry judgmental sort of damning or, or bad of a thin man you know dylan likes mm. to damn people it was like fundamentalist christianity was waiting for him there was something that occurred to me and i don't know why i didn't think about this in my private school childhood <laughs> but i'm sorry you know <laughs> i was thinking about the whole thing about about abraham and isaac which obviously has its you know a, a mention in a dylan song too and your, your rejection of Christianity around that time, and it's in the same chapter. And I was thinking, God says to Abraham, you know, if you'll pardon the, the quote, if you really love me, you'll kill your son. Kill me a son. Kill God me a said son. to Abraham, kill me a yeah, son. Yeah, I'm not surprised he said, hey, you must be putting me on. But, but <laughs> you know, and so then he gets the moment where the knife is up here, it's just about to go into him, and he says, ha, it's all right, don't worry, don't do it. You've proved yourself to me. You've passed the test. And I thought, it's like some kind of sick prank that is almost abusive. I, I think I, I think it was Andrew Mayer who said on Twitter once, because it stuck in my mind, he said, today's practical joker is tomorrow's abuser. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Because this is a kind of sick religious practical joke that is really abusive. Yeah. In your chapter when you were, when you were rejecting Christianity, and that was in on that same page, I thought... Yeah. Yeah, that's that's not. I know that's the Old Testament God, but still, that's not a nice thing to do. Well, and it, you know, it gets it gets taught in Sunday school. Yeah, and the message that we're supposed to take from that story, or the message that I was taught, was: look how wonderful that it is that Abraham will do whatever God, God <sighs> says. Look how strong his faith was. Right. I remember listening to that story and just being terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I thought, yeah. well, okay, does that mean that God can just order my dad to? take out a knife and cut my throat on a hillside tomorrow yeah. and he'll do it because yeah. he loves God more than me. It was frightening. That's you know. the gateway to salvation. It's funny. Like, I was really? taught that story in uh, Hebrew school, you know, like like Bob Dylan was. Right. Yeah. It was an Orthodox school because my mom came from an Orthodox family. So, you know, it was really hardcore. It was the same sort of thing, except that my dad was like totally secular and basically that probably saved me from what happened to some of the kids who went to that school. But anyway, I just remember thinking when I was like seven, eight, when I heard that, God's nuts. Yeah, He's yeah. He's fucking crazy. And it never occurred to me that he was. I just thought, this religion, I thought. This, who are these people? What, this is like the 20th century. I mean, what the hell's going when on When God here? said to Abraham, you know, kill your son if you love me, Abraham should have turned around and said, if you love me, you wouldn't ask me that. Yeah, that's the only. But also, you know, just kill, I love what Dylan does with that. I love when he says, "Kill me a son." Kill me a son. That's like it's like kill me a lamb. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. kill me a whatever. Just kill me something. I, I need a, I need a sacrifice. I'm watching television. You know, yeah. well, I'm not, I'm not really paying attention. Just kill me a fucking son and get on with it. And know? then, and actually, Dylan captures the absurdity of that story yeah. in those lyrics when he says, "You must be putting me on." God says, "No." Abe says, "What?" God says, you can do what you want, eh? but next time you see me coming, you better run. 
So Abe says, where do you want this killing done? <laughs> All <It's>, right. <laughs> to me, when I, I, I think I did this on the uh, podcast once and Luke hated it, and you can, we can cut this out. But because I came from a, a secular Jewish background and my dad was a, was a you know, middle-class businessman, I hear that whole song as two Jewish guys yeah, having a conversation. Right. Yeah. So God like said, fetching it. Abe, yeah, exactly. Kill me your son. <laughs> Abe says, Oh man, you must be putting me on. God says, No. Abe says, What? God says, You can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming, you better run. Abe says, eh, Where do you want this killing done? <laughs> God says, Out on Highway 61. And then they go on, because a lot of it is actually about business. You know, Mac the fingers at the Louis the King. I got right, all yeah. these red, white, and blue shoestrings and a dozen telephones. That don't, do you know where I can get rid of these things? Yeah, yeah. He says, well, let me think for a minute. So, where am I yeah, going to stay for the next th- world war? <laughs> yeah, it's all, but it's all kind of, to me, coming from that background, I hear it as it's all business. Mm. It's just God negotiating yeah. business. It's transactional. It's transactional. Yeah. And, and then know. to see that Dylan become the Dylan who takes that story totally, literally. Oh, I mean, the, one way that I can explain it, and I've thought about the psychology of fundamentalist believers quite a lot, obviously, because I was mm. raised by some. But one way that I can understand it is that Dylan had a love for the cryptic and the mysterious and almost like a love for what didn't make sense. You know, in a way, like, the Old Testament is so mad. I mean, the New Testament's pretty crazy to read the book of Revelations, right? I mean, the whole thing's so crazy. It's almost like Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat or something. It's just <laughs> out of this. It's just wild. Yeah. Have you ever seen Robert Crumb's... Uh, I don't know if you know Robert Crumb. The, he was the 1960s cartoonist. Cartoonist. But he did the book of Genesis. Right. He, he did the entire unexpurgated word-for-word oh, word book of Genesis as a book. And so he illustrated it. And it's full of people just, you know, fucking their brains out and, you know, killing each other and meaningless wars for no reason and Shem begat that. It's, it's absolutely, I just thought this is, it's, it's what I thought when I was eight years old. I thought this is crazy. Yeah. And this was what I was going through when I was a teenager was basically wrestling with this question of does any of this make sense anymore and then realizing that it didn't. But one thing that came out of that period that was positive was my near miss with meeting Bob Dylan. Oh, God. When I was 17 years old. I I really wanted to mention this. So I'd I'd gone to, like, my ordinary local comprehensive schools all my life, but I was quite good at school, and I was also in a lot of trouble at school. So I got kicked out, and I got a scholarship to this really posh school called Harrow, and I was there, and I was a full Dylan obsessive at the time. And I had an LP player in my room. I had a massive poster of Highway 61 revisited on my wall. And one day I was listening to Hurricane in my bedroom in school. And one of the younger kids knocked on the door and came in because everyone just kind of hangs out in each other's rooms there. And he said to me, what are you listening to? I said, what do you mean, what am I listening to? Don't you know? (laughs) This is Bob Dylan. Come on. And he said, oh, yeah, my mom knows him. And I said, no, no, no. Your mum knows his music. And he said, no, no, my mum used to date the bassist in his band. And in fact, whenever Dylan's in town, we always go backstage at his shows. And I was like, what? (laughs) And I knew Dylan was coming to London in a few weeks. This is a true story. And uh, he was playing at Wembley. And in these schools, the older boys kind of have quite a lot. Like you can kind of, 
I mean, it's not right, but you can kind of give the younger boys homework or you can let them off their homework. You've got a little bit of authority, right? And I said to him, right, get me backstage tickets to Dylan's gig at Wembley and you haven't got to do any homework for the next two terms, right? And he's like, done. So three weeks later, there I am, 17 years old, and we show up at Wembley Arena. I'm given an access all areas pass. We walk in, me and my new little friend from school who doesn't even know who Dylan is, except that it's his mum's, that, that his mum used to date the bassist, Tony, Tony Garnier. Garnier. And um, we walk into the dressing room where the band are all just sitting there. So I spent, you know, I, I thought it'd be a lot more rock and roll personally, but, you know, they were already kind of getting on a bit. So I said, Larry Campbell, Charlie Sexton, Tony Garnier. It was Tony Garnier. It was Jim Keltner. Oh, wow. The drummer. Well, I, so are I, they all doing crosswords? I mean, what are they doing? Knitting? Um, I was the only one who had a beer out of the fridge. There was a fridge right. with beers. Right. No one else was drinking. I thought there might be kind of like, you know, drugs, sex and rock and roll. None of that. They're all sitting there. It's all very quiet and civilized. And I'm sitting there talking to Tony Garnier and he's like, so how's school? Are you working hard? I'm like, where's Bob? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> um, and I brought all these LPs with me that Bob could sign. And he said, oh, Bob's in the next room getting acupuncture, which he always does before shows. Apparently. With you. Right? Okay. But he said, don't worry, he might be hanging, he might be around after the show. So, you, you know, hopefully you'll see him then. And then the show starts and it's Wembley Arena and I go and we watch the show, me and the mum of, of the, my school friend and a bunch of other people. We watched the sh show from the side of the stage. I'm about 12 feet away from Bob Dylan, right? I can see him. I, when the lights go up, I can see the whole crowd of thousands of people. I can see the spittle in the floodlights when he plays his harmonica. When he left the stage, if I'd wanted to, I could have run on and grabbed that harmonica, you know, and I thought about it. But right at the end of the show, I thought, this is my chance. And I was cradling the albums in my arms and I thought, I've got to get his signature. I've got to. And there was only a small kind of standing space next to the stage, right? So when Dylan came off the stage, I had to get out of the way so that he could walk past me. And... Just for a second, my heart leapt in my chest and I thought, I've got to grab his hand and make him shake my hand and say thank you for everything you've meant to me. But I bottled it. He's very short as well. He was standing right next to me. Were you uh, afraid you were going to knock him over? Or something? Yeah, or something like that. And it didn't happen. And he didn't appear in the dressing room after the show. And I gave all of these LPs to Tony Garnier and I said, please, can I get Dylan's signature? And then a few weeks later, they arrived at school with all of the signature of all of the band and Bob's signature wasn't on it. So I came that close. Well, Bob Dylan came that close to getting a chance to meet me. But <laughs> it'll probably never happen for him now. Now, that was, um, that was a great story. And I know that there is, I haven't heard, uh, but I know you said you spent a drunken evening with Christopher Ricks, which is not Bob Dylan, but one of the great, great intellectual proponents of Bob Dylan. Yeah, I mean, Christopher Ricks, I mean, for people who don't know, I mean, Christopher Ricks was one of the, I mean, a lot of people will know, but he is one of the leading literary critics of the 20th century. And he was one of the first people to argue that Bob should be taken seriously as literature. And there's no doubt at all that Dylan would not have the Nobel Prize if it hadn't been for all the advocacy mm. and all the work that Christopher Ricks had been doing for decades. Mm. 
So I went to Oxford University after I finished school and Christopher Ricks was the Oxford Professor of Poetry for three years, uh, which is like an honorary position, but it means you come and give a few lectures every now and again. And, you know, I'd read Dylan's Visions of Sin, which was kind of all right, but um, which is Christopher Ricks' book on Dylan. And um, I'd read a bunch of Ricks' other writing on Dylan, which had really been a very formative influence on me and in kind of getting into poetry and beginning to understand like how poetry works. Because Ricks, like, he takes it apart at this granular level. You know, he shows how does this rhyme work? How does this illusion work? How does this bit of ambiguity work? Right. So... Ricks had been very important to me. So he gave this lecture and there was about like 50 people in the room or something. And I was so excited to, to see him. And he spoke about Dylan. And I knew I wanted to ask him a question at the end. And I kind of wanted to tease him a little bit because I didn't think his new book was that good. And I was full of the bravado of a 19-year-old, you know. I wouldn't have the guts to do it now. But um, before I went to this lecture... I went to the pub beforehand and I got so drunk because I was so nervous about standing up and asking Chris Fricks a question. So I stood up and I said, it's such a pleasure to be able to hear one of my heroes talking about one of my idols. So far, so good. <laughs> Nicely delivered line. Yeah. And then I opened my, my mouth and I just, I spoke complete nonsense. You know, like Dylan at his most cryptic and like nonsensical in interview made much more sense than I did <laughs> in this drunken monologue that I tried to deliver at Christopher Ricks. And you could just see, because he was a nice guy, he kind of looked really sorry for me. And then after the Q&A was over, he came up to me and he, he just started chatting to me about Dylan. And... It was so strange because this guy's a really prestigious. I mean, he was the most famous, you know, I'm, I'm at this famous university. He was the most famous professor in the department. You know, all these like academics crowding around him, these professors like crowding around him trying to get his attention. And he just started chatting to me about Dylan. He was like, what's your favorite Dylan album? And I was like, well, probably Blonde on Blonde or Desire. And he said, oh, I love Desire. What's your favorite song on Desire? And we started talking about Black Diamond Bay. And he said, what are you doing now? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I was going to go probably get a drink. And he said, come on, I'll come with you. And we just, me and Christopher Rex, and he's about 70 years old at this point, and I'm 19, we just, we just wander off into the evening. And we ended up at my room in college, and I had every Dylan album. And we just spent the evening, like two teenagers, just spinning Dylan records. He'd be like, oh, let's listen to this one. And he's like, no, no, I've got a better one, you know. He just had this childlike love of Dylan, which was so much fun. And I remember he told me, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this, but I don't think there's anything private in it. He told me about the one time that he'd met Dylan. And I thought it was quite a good little anecdote. He said that he'd met Dylan. I said, have you, have you met him? And he said, well, I, I met him once. I got a call and I was invited backstage to a show. And unlike me, he did get a chance to shake his hand and to have a chat. And apparently Dylan said to Christopher Ricks, Professor, we meet at last. And Christopher Ricks didn't know what to say. Like Christopher Ricks is like a, is like a schoolboy himself, you know, struck dumb by his idol. And Ricks didn't know what to say to him. So he just said what any book nerd says, which is what are you reading at the moment? And Dylan said to Rex, and I can still remember this like it was yesterday, Dylan said to Rex, I'm reading Richard III by Shakespeare. And he said, tell me, Professor, 
is it just about politics or is it about anything else? And Rick said, no, it's about if you can't love your body and you can't love yourself, then you'll never be able to love anybody else. And Dylan said, oh, thank you. Thank you for that. And that was the end of the conversation. And I love that. I love that story because the deference that Dylan showed to this guy, he kind of reversed the roles there because Dylan's the the idol, the great writer, and Rick's is the fan. But Dylan put himself in the role of the student, asking him these questions, and I thought that was just a lovely little anecdote. I'm not sure if I was allowed to say it because it's not really mine to tell, but... That's beautiful. There you go, I've told it now. I think it's, no, I think it's beautiful. And it reminds me of, um, we, we had Michael Gray on the podcast, and, and Michael Gray was invited backstage or wangled away to get backstage during a tour at some point. And, you know, he's written many books about Dylan, not about his poetry from the Christopher Ricks sort of angle, but uh, but from various other angles, not, not biographical stuff. But, you know, he's a great writer, I think. Anyway, Dylan wasn't particularly interested in talking to him, but Dylan spent most of the time, if I recall, talking to Michael Gray's kid who was completely you know completely unimpressed unimpressed yeah he he didn't even know why he was there well it's probably quite nice for dylan to hang out with somebody who doesn't think that he's like god's gift well exactly i know that when we were corresponding before this you were trying to uh figure out what you what song you were going to uh you know start with and you mentioned uh, mama you've been on my mind and i wondered why that might be important to you yeah i mean When I think back on the artists that have meant the most to me throughout my whole life, there's a few that I've been obsessive about. But Dylan has probably been the one who's been there all along. And you kind of, I don't know about you guys, but I can go through a period of a few months where I don't listen to Dylan and I'm listening to new stuff. I've kind of listened to most of it to death. And then every now and again, you reach these junctures in your life where Dylan means everything to you again. And one of those moments is if you have a romantic breakup. And I don't know if anyone has ever expressed what it's like to be heartbroken and hurt and desperate after a breakup like Dylan. And and Mama, You've Been On My Mind has got me through a couple of breakups. So has Idiot Wind especially the Hard Rain version, my favorite. Mm-hmm. Two of the different tones of a breakup there, the sort of sorrow and the anger. Mummy, even on my mind, I just think it's an astonishing song. It's incredible that he didn't put it on an album, you know, until it appeared on the Bootleg series. I just think, you know, he wrote this song in, what, 63, 64? Like yeah. And it's this song where he just keeps singing... I don't mean no trouble. It's not this. It's not that. It's not that I want you. It's not that I even care who you're waking with tomorrow. It's just that you've been on my mind. And we don't believe him, right? We know that he cares. He's an unreliable narrator in that song. And it makes me think, you know, how many people in 1963 or uh, the early 60s when Dylan wrote that song could fit that level of psychological complexity into a simple three-minute song about missing your lover? And I'm not sure Dylan even knew how revolutionary that was at the time. But yeah, you know, it it breaks my heart every time I hear it. And when I'm heartbroken, I, I need it. So that's why I keep going back to it. Is It Rolling Bob Talking Dylan is recorded back home in Studio 3 at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Roisin King and produced by Robin Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. 
Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. I traveled the long road of despair. I met no other traveler there. A lot of people gone. A lot of people I knew. I've made up my mind to give myself to you. <laughs>